Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast. And before we get into today's interview, which is a paradigm deep dive on the Hollowers and goth magic with James Sobrano, I have a few community updates. First, friend of the show, Nathan Sievert, has restarted the Nerd Word podcast as 2D10 and is covering all sorts of horror and old world of darkness topics, as well as a few other things in gaming at large. He had me on to talk about the state of Mage the Ascension and the old world of darkness, and that interview is available at utilitymuffinlabs.com. There's also a link in the show notes. Nathan has also agreed to do a recorded live play of my Mage One-Shot Justice Ascendant, but he kind of said it off the cuff, so we'll see if that actually happens, but I hope it does, and when it does, I'll jam it in the feed or at least give you a link to it, and I'm pretty jazzed to run that. Community member Undead Foodstuff has posted another episode of their Mage Storytime series, and this one is about a rescue mission to save a doomed technocratic ship, and the link is in the show notes. I also wanted to tell you about some of the upcoming episodes we have. I'm starting a new series called Mage Across Time and Space, which discusses the considerations in how to run Mage in different places and different times. And I have a bunch of interviews for that already lined up. And if you are a subject matter expert and have played Mage before and would like to talk about a particular place in time, give us a holler and maybe we can record something on it. And with that, on with the show. So James, how you doing? I'm very busy right now. I've had a lot going on 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 the writing side of my career and also on the in the COVID side of my career. I'm one of those rare people who my job got more intensive during the shutdown. Right now, like I would say a, a huge amount of my time is devoted to writing Werewolf 5th Edition. But that said, whenever this comes out, maybe I'll, I'll be done. I hope I'm done by then. I, <laughs> I, sh- I should have been done already. Yeah. We are doing that thing that every show does where they have Jane Sombrano recognized source material expert to come on and talk about something that James is familiar with goths. So (laughs) the topic today is goths in mage and kind of the hollow ones. So we're going to talk about the paradigm and we're going to talk about the group and culture a little bit before that starts. Can you please establish your bona fides for our audience? You have so much eyeliner on now. It's uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) We're on video. So not everyone can see this. Um, so, you know, I don't know when I first accepted that I was goth. Well, because, you know, back then, I feel like it's a lot more socially acceptable now. Back then, like, it was immediate bully material. It was immediate, like, you know, you had so much, like, negativity being directed your way. So a lot of times people would be like, oh, you're goth. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. But, like, so it's hard for me to say what, you know, when when I joined that subculture, I guess. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like a conscious thought. It was just like, I wore darker clothes. I wore makeup. And you know what? Honestly... When I look back on that as an adult, I actually think the reason I started playing around with like, you know, nail polish and lipstick and eyeliner and stuff like that was a lot more to do with some gender expression stuff I was dealing with, but it also was mostly black. So yeah. there's that. And then there's also like obviously like a certain like I, I was I was oh quote small A awakened to a certain subgenre of uh, of music and also a larger subgenre of just like more like sad emotional to this day like I am obsessed with just the saddest music it's all my favorite music is super sad my my three favorite bands are they're not none of them I guess would be qualified as goth but um my favorite bands are the Smashing Pumpkins which is all you know misery love songs Leonard Cohen who I think isn't technically goth but honestly should be an honorary goth and Godspeed You Black Emperor which doesn't have any lyrics but is all really sad sounding music because it's all about the world I channeled my love of lipstick eyeliner and artificial lashes into musical theater, which it's interesting mm-hmm. how the two have swapped in terms of acceptability. <laughs> Over uh, you time. know, it's also, now that I think about it, it's also interesting when I go back to like those years of my life, the like middle school to high school years, that there was a lot of overlap in the people who wanted to get into that and goths. 
And then also, here's the other thing I'm gonna I'm gonna say as part of my my qualification. I'm looking. I can from where I'm sitting right now. I can see the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven trench coats I have hanging over there, and they're all completely different styles. See, at that point, that's no um, longer goth. That's a cry for help or a sign that you worked for White Wolf in the 1990s. I also grew up primarily surrounded by either Mexican or indigenous culture. And if you don't know this already, there's um, if you've seen Orange is the New Black, actually, there's a really good example of it in the character Flaca. But there is a huge amount of Mexican goths. Like it is it is not a small thing. And also there's goths all over the res. So like I had a lot of like older kids around. So I was kind of like one of those kids who hung out with older kids because I was like a little bit too. I thought about life a little bit too too seriously for my age group. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my friends are older. And because of that, I had all these goth Mexicans and, and natives around me who were like, hey, what up? Hang out with us. Also, Marilyn Manson sucks. But uh, and then the, here's the other quali qualifier. Um, and people, some people are going to hear this and be like, what the fuck? This makes you not an expert on this. I was the store manager for a Hot Topic for about seven years. Mm, okay, that's you are officially impeachable, unimpeachable uh, <laughs> in terms of in terms of that. So what I think that makes me a particular expert on is an important thing to talk about, like about what happened to the goth subculture between the nineties and now, and how it was hurt and how it was damaged and what it is today compared to what it was then, and why you have this big like like severing like canyon between quote unquote traditional goths and the larger amount of goths who call themselves that today and the if you want to go into mage lore they talk about it as the syndicate making a very specific and horrific attack against the hollow ones and kind of destroying a lot of their their culture and sub sub networks the syndicate is notable for kind of a pump and dump tactic where they find anything that could be a mythic thread, for lack of a better term, that is gaining any purchase in mainstream society, commercializes the shit out of it, makes money off of it, and then demonizes it. So the example they make is the idea of not quite before the satanic panic, but in the early 90s when you had a neo-pagan thing that was coming up where they started, uh, the syndicate caught wind of this, started pumping out like, oh, find your, your totem or your spirit an animal which is a phrase white people should just never use and and selling like get this anathem that has been custom made and then after making a whole bunch of money off of it just kind of being like their their media division turning on that and being like the secret menace the things your kids are worshiping when you're not home you're, you're purporting that they did the same thing with the goths yeah and then and i think part of the the dump asset of what you're talking about too is like you you overwhelm the quote-unquote masses with this vision of what you're making that subculture uh with a syndicate is making that subculture to the point where it's no longer what it was originally what i would say is like if you did word association right now and you thought goths like hot topic's going to come up it's going to come up in your head you're going to think about goth, like when when south park explored goths it was through the idea of them turning against hot topic but it's going to come up in your head you aren't going to think necessarily of alien sex fiend you aren't going to think necessarily of like um the sex gang children or the death cult you're not going to think of uh light asylum you're not even necessarily going to think of Susie. like i i know a lot of people who are actually more familiar with the subculture oh of course they will but the the masses are going to think oh hot topic hot topic kids that's goths so, and so you've kind of like destroyed a lot of the association, a lot of the like things that they consider sacred by, by associating with a store, with, with something that just sells their culture. Can you give us then a quick overview of what the goth subculture we're going to talk about roughly includes? A time period, maybe a short list of inspirations, what the key ideas or philosophies would be. That way we have kind of a start for the rest of the conversation. 
Okay, quick. It is a subculture that you saw emerging in the late 70s and really blowing up in, in the 80s and also having a lot of like mass market appeal in the 90s. But essentially, it was originally tied to a manner of dressing that was like a side culture of punk, which was more macabre. It was like black and white. It was embracing like images that associate with death, like skulls and bones and spiders and bats and shit like that. Like A lot of that stuff came a little bit more later, but I'm just talking about the general like look. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was honestly in the beginning was just the black and white you're going with a lot of like wearing black wearing wearing black where uh lightening up your skin and make yourself more look more corpse like and it quickly became also a, a musical revolution again as a side like it kind of came out of punk in a lot of ways but mm-hmm. you can argue about the different directions it came from too and that musical subgenre you're gonna like i mentioned some of the bands earlier but like Bauhaus, Susie. Um, Susie, Susie Sue, Nick Cave is pretty gothy, even though he gets associated with punk. Joy Division is like a proto-goth band. And, and those are like the 80s. In the 90s, what you experienced was it, it as in all musical influences, it started to in, infiltrate and influence and develop new musical genres. And you had things like gothic metal and other things like that, that a lot of the traditional goths will say don't count as goth. But like Marilyn Manson isn't gothic music. He does borrow from the gothic style. And the gothic style tends to focus on the emotions associated around horror and terror as part of their style. So you, you also see a lot of like horror movie reference with, with being goth too. And is it specifically gothic literature and gothic horror? The definition to me of gothic horror versus other types of horror is usually you are falling victim to something someone else did. Gothic horror is when the ghost haunts you because your ex-husband was a serial killer, not because you're the serial killer. When you're talking about literature and horror, which also is an important theme of this, I don't think that it, I think that you have a lot of roots coming out of that, but I don't think that you necessarily are limited to that. Goths are, are pretty open to interpreting like everything uh, in, into their own way. And, a, and a, an aspect of being goth is being really individualistic. You don't even necessarily, t- today, you have all these subcategories of goth. And one of my favorites that sometimes I lean into a little bit aesthetically is pastel goths, who like to incorporate a lot of color into their particular setup, which wasn't an originally originally not something that was really part of the look. Where did the Victorian Edwardian Belle Epoque dress come from? Like the revival of those late Victorian and early Edwardian dress come from? Well, I think it's arguable, and I think that different people might say slightly different things because the quote-unquote history of gothic subculture Mm -hmm. isn't something that you can really just easily pick up a book on. There might be one out there. I don't know what it is. I haven't read it. So a really important aspect, I think, of what it is to be goth is your what you see is beautiful. And and it's and it's seeing beauty in the macabre, it's seeing beauty in grief, it's seeing beauty in horror, which is why those become aesthetics, right? And that was something that certain poets like Edgar Allan Poe could do, right? And and you have a lot of associations with him and, and other people from that period with that look, with the Edwardian, with the Victorian stuff. Um, on top of that, one thing that I didn't mention that actually can't really be ignored about the Gothic subculture is that it, it really originates from like poor white kids in the UK. And so they're drawing on their own specific heritage and their you know, Victorian heritage to play around with. You have like the different kinds of like the way people were dying then and, and like using that as like aesthetic. You, you, there's so many different directions we can go with that. <laughs> now you make me think that there's a world where the goth subculture came out of like the American West and like the goths were informed by cowboy culture instead of like Belle Epoque culture. And I want to see that world now. 
you can see that when you watch a Rob Zombie video. Noted. So you said something super important to me, which I feel is going to be the nut of things, seeing the beauty in death, suffering, and horror. It sounds what you're portraying is this combination of romanticism almost with resignation. Like, what would you consider to be the emotional core then of that artistic movement? It's hard to say that Goss have unifying worldviews. I think you could find a few common themes, but it, like with almost everything, like even though you could argue that the style is very conformist, you still can't argue that that style isn't conformist with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it actually celebrates individual individuality in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a lot of emphasis on being an individual. So it's really hard for me to say, oh, yes, this is the common. This is what everyone thinks. But but I would say you do find those themes. You do find the themes of not just appreciation of the beauty in the macabre, but also a celebration of that beauty. And honestly, the thing you said about what if goth culture came out of you know, Cowboys in the West is interesting to me because I mentioned right when we started that, like, I had so much influence from Mexican goss growing up. And if you have a lot, if you have, like, much knowledge of, like, indigenous Mexican culture, you know that there is a lot, there is, like, a totally different relationship with death and the dead than Western culture has. And, like, a really simple example of that is, like, if you haven't, if you don't know a lot about that, is go watch the movie Coco and give you, like, some introductory, like, ideas of that. But, like, of course you grieve the people you've lost. Like everyone grieves the people they've lost, but the way like Mexican indigenous culture and now like Mexican culture today, but it's borrowed. It's like, I, I want to be clear that it comes from indigeneity not from colonizers because Mexican culture today is a mix of both. There's like a celebration of death. You have the Los Muertos where you, you know, honor your dead family and you have like parties with your living family to honor them. And, and, and you celebrate death. If you look at any of like the, the art surrounding Los Muertos, um, you celebrate death in a very colorful way with flowers and living things on skeletons. Right. And so that, even though that is not where the gospel subculture comes from, I do think very strongly that that aspect of it is why they're at least for, you know, in my anecdotal experience growing up in Southern California, is why the gospel culture appeals to Mexicans so easily, to Mexican kids. Starting with that, we, we kind of have this philosophical locus. Now, when we translate that to doing magic, what are the foundational beliefs that you feel a gothic-inspired mage is drawing on to change the world? Like when I think of a paradigm, I think of either tenants or axioms, depending on if it's technocratic or non-technocratic. And it says, there are fundamental ways in which a mage of this worldview believes the world works that other people don't or other people don't as strongly. And that is the basic paradigm element that allows that person to change the world when combined with enlightened will. What to you are kind of those fundamental statements about a Gothic worldview where one sees the world in a different way than other people and allows them to do magic then? The reason that the hollow ones, we're going to go to the mage group, right? The reason that the hollow ones are a, as powerful a group as they are when they really, when you look at, like people sometimes look at them on the surface and they're like, why is this group so important? They're just a bunch of goths. Is because, you know, and also they'll say themselves, they're, they're a craft of orphans. They're primarily a bunch of orphans who have come together with some similar ideas. But, but the reason that they are what they are and why they hold such an important place in this story is because of what the world of darkness is in, in itself as a setting. You know, it's a gothic punk storytelling game of horror, right? You know, it's right there in the title. But also, every single subsetting of the world of darkness deals with the idea of the end of the world in some way or another. You know, you have Gehenna, you have Apocalypse, um, even Ascension is an end of the world. Ascension is still like the end of the world as we know it. And they're also battling forces that do want to end it permanently. 
so the world of darkness, even though it's a reflection of ours, isn't ours. It's it's a totally it's like this it's Earth six seventeen. It's not Earth six sixteen, right? And it and everything in it is essentially darker. It's uh and and I mean not just like color wise, but thematically, like crimes are worse. You know, poverty is worse. Buildings are crumbling. Um, there's more you know shadows in the dark places. It's harder to get out of like bad situations. Everything is more and more awful so you have these factions and, and you know i think the, the way the other uh, world darkness factions look at the end of the world is important when discussing the hollow ones too because sometimes they prefer to hang out with like vampires over mages because they're fucking sick of mages essentially you have all these different factions looking at how the world is ending and how you can visibly see it ending around you in a slow sad crying death for for most people at least from the hollow one perspective and what do you do with that because you know you know you can read studies today about how common uh, depression and anxiety are getting and it has a lot to do with how awful our environment is and how it feels our world is coming to an end in a lot of ways and, and everything feels so negative and like there's nothing hopeless now this world's even worse so what do you do with that how do you survive that because if you just lean into it like you know another thing that's probably that probably comes up in the world of darkness is um suicide rates are way higher than our world but they're already really high in our world and so if you want to survive that you got to embrace that but also you don't want to embrace it like the nefandi you don't want to become the evil in the world you don't want to become the darkness you want to see what is beautiful about that darkness you want to see what is powerful about that darkness you want to see what is attractive and exciting and cool and become that i'm using all this to come around to i think one of the primary ways of interacting with magic from that point of view is going to be in reimagining yourself as not being a helpless kind of victim on the side of this ending of things but rather being a hero in that story like, you're not going to escape that story. That's the story you're in. So you paint yourself with the aesthetics of that story, but you also paint yourself as a hero of that story. One of the things you see that's wrong with the world is like the crypto fascists and the technocracy or whatever, right? And so you make it a point to constantly be a wrench in their works. But you do that in this like image of the thing that they've wrought, in your opinion, the, the, the decay of the world. So the way I'm hearing that is the idea, one cornerstone of the hollower belief is we each have the power to change the world. In that there is some great reservoir of strength inside of us. We just need to find a way to channel it. They are channeling it through the passions that come about through the emotional experience. And it just so happens that the lens they are choosing is one that is considered macabre. It is no better or worse than another one. Like who's to say that that is better or worse than what a cultist does being doing something that is hedonistic or sensual. Mm -hmm. um, this is just choosing a different range of emotions and kind of harnessing through that. That is kind of the interpretation I get from that, that emotions are powerful, that if we are willing to lean into them, we can affect change in the world. And politically or magically, we refuse to be bystanders as the world burns. Exactly. I 100% I agree with that. And also, I would I would probably like nail down those specific emotions as being like horror, terror and grief. I want to point out specifically what you just said is why they get called romantics, because the romantics did believe essentially, yeah, like like emotions are powerful. You need to lean into your passion like that is like the most important central basis of what it is to build art or make change in the world is your emotions and your passions. In the case of the hollow ones, it's just they are focusing on darker emotions. We might even be able to throw anger in there. I think I think anger tends to lean more punk, but I would also argue that while the hollow ones are presented as a very gothy group, they are very they're also very much the punk side of gothic in a lot of ways. 
One of the fundamental difficulties with the Hollow Ones to me, until I read the Revised Tradition book, is in first edition, the Hollow Ones was just almost interchangeable with Orphan. It was just the fact that there were enough orphans that they recognized other orphans and they called themselves Hollow Ones. In second edition, they were the Goths. And then in Revised, we got this kind of sharding that you were the Hollow One, if they were to be a tradition, their factions would be the Goths, the postmoderns, and the Gutter Mages. The, the Goss or the Romantics is that's the Neville Sinclair, kind of the main thrust that we get. But yeah. the other two, I think, are endlessly fascinating just because it is the only group in Mage that is seemingly, with the possible exception of maybe the Syndicate, that recognizes that it is postmodern, like that it has a fundamental skepticism of meta narratives baked into it. And, and part of the whole idea of, yeah, Hermetic, you can spend 12 hours creating a pentacle of Saturn to control that spirit. I'm going to do with lipstick on a cocktail napkin. They absolutely kind of turn a lot of that sacred traditionalism on its head and like spit it back out at you in a way that seems sacrilegious, but also get shit done. And it does come from their very skeptic. And you're right, that's that's the the whole skepticism thing is very postmodern. Um, that does come from that. I'm interested in, in talking more about your idea with the syndicate being like that, because I'm not 100% sure how I feel about that. But we don't have to talk about that now. <laughs> I think there's probably no convention that the Hollow Ones would hate more than syndicate, which is inter- that's why it makes it extra interesting to me. It is the fact that they both understand that in a in a certain thing, that they recognize the malleability of reality kind of in this very fundamental way. They're both groups that, to me, really understand what the Ascension War is. And one is doubling down and trying to win it, where the other one has said, this is just stupid. Or as I said earlier, this is bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> if we ever do Mage the Podcast bumper stickers, this is bullshit, James and Brian. <laughs> So is that skepticism, where does that come from? Because philosophically, the skepticism is not that magic isn't real, but the skepticism is of the belief that any group has a monopoly on truth. Theirs is to say, Hermetic, your sigil has power, but not for the reason you think it does. Or, hey, Chorister, your belief and prayer have power, but not for the reason you think it does. And they are a group that is very willing to shout that. Where does that kind of fit in? Is that just the punk aspect of that goth community that you talk about? Or, do you, or does that have older roots? Well, I actually was going to say that I think it's associated with with the punk leanings and the you know the two things the the one that the, the way goth culture is represented in the world of darkness is is very goth punk, and also that goth culture itself is you know at least was born of punk in a lot of ways. Another thing you're looking at is when we go back to this paradigm discussion, you see the world for what it is. You see the world dying. Everything is. But, but you're smart. If you don't take that on the surface level, you, you can also see why that's happening. You know who's causing it. You know who's at fault. You know who's responsible. And that tends to be the groups in power who are unwilling to change and who hold things up as, as like inviolably sacred. You know, whether that be like how important money is to power in the case of the syndicate or whether that be how important like endless years of rigorous education and accolades are to the order of Hermes. Like all of it is bullshit and all of it is why we're in such a bad place now. It seems to me that one of their statements are that the many of the trappings of paradigm are artificial complications created so that either one group can be a gatekeeper or can tie the hands of other groups. That if we force people to think they have to pray for four hours before they will get some sort of deliverance, that makes them come to our church and choose up their temporal resources in terms of being able to do anything else. We have this fast magic that kind of recognizes that these trappings are not the true magic, and that is kind of where they come from. 
I agree with that. And I think that there's a whole lot like that healthy skepticism is is why they're able to lean into that. But also, I you know I was thinking about this thing that you said about the napkin, about the lipstick on a napkin thing. And you've, you've used that quote with me before. We've talked about yeah, it before yeah, in the yeah. past. Uh, it's, um, it's mentioned in, in, pardon me, Mage 20, I think, uses lipstick on a quarter. Uh, as as the as the replacement for the hermetic, and um, and it brings up this fundamental problem of okay, it sounds like your magic is categorically better than anyone else's. What slows you down, and what makes you special? That it, from a storyteller perspective, that was always a question I had. So, kind of in game terms, we're talking about like high ritual versus like quick, just fast cast. And I think that uh, the Hollow Ones have that too. But like maybe we don't see it the same way because in a lot of ways we respect things like, you know, the high ritual. I'm going to use the same examples we're using of the, of the syndicate and the hermetics of being like, you know, the, the way you manage your your bank account and the, and the way that you engage in like these actually high rituals of like summoning like the incarnate of Jupiter or whatever, you know, whatever you're doing as being like more respectable than what the hollow ones do. But hear me out. What hollow one, what character that engages in the aesthetic of the hollow ones of goth of the goth culture, do you know that could roll out of bed and look like how they present themselves to the world? That is a high ritual. And also, I want to bring that back to the paradigm talk about how you make yourself the hero of, of this story. You make yourself into the image of who you can be. And and, and also leads to this idea of individuality because you get to choose who that is. So you get up in the morning and you painstakingly craft your image into who it is that you want to present yourself as through whatever that might be. You might be it might be like the layers of clothes you have. It might be all your makeup. It might be um, you know dyeing your hair or doing it a certain way or even wearing a wig. Here's a weird one. It might be training your cat to ride around on your shoulder. All of those things are aspects of the the aesthetic of the crafting the hero, crafting who you are, crafting this individual that looks unique and powerful and most importantly cool i really like that way of interpreting it the idea that they are not fast casting their persona is this giant focus that yes. allows them to do something postmodern, essentially but the other comparison to go back to our previous episode is like ah dream speakers are op they can just uh ask the spirit of someone's gun to stop breaking uh, to not work and and your, your statement to that was like yeah if they had already established that relationship and gotten that going. So it seems fast, but it is it is like calling your friend to help them change a tire. It only appears that they're aiding you quickly, but that's because you've spent years investing in that friendship. That's pretty fascinating. So that, to me, indicates that if we're going to talk about systematically, the system then becomes something like the practices then become what would that be? Persona craft or disguise or personages? Like it comes up like the NWO does it and stuff like yeah. that too. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The uniform itself is kind of, is almost magical unto itself and the trappings of what you want to be. And that's pretty fascinating. And from there, we then get an explosion of instruments, assuming they fit into that. So, And it's also interesting in that their instruments are kind of bound by how familiar they are with the rest of the magical world. If you're going to make a postmodern commentary on it, you need to be familiar with everyone else's style to show that it is just a veneer cast on top of it or to reinterpret it. So in this weird way, their focuses are kind of limited by their familiarity with other magic in some ways. I think that's a that's fair insight, but I, I also want to add on to that. that um, I also think that in the case of the Hollow Ones, their existence in a lot of ways, they might argue against this and be mad about this being said, but their existence in a lot of ways is um, they came about as a response to the traditions and technocracy and Ascension War. They came about as like, you know, mages waking, you know, awakening and being like, 
what is this crap? What is wrong with you all? And that's kind of also why they tend to be so postmodernist, right? Because they're very skeptical of all this stuff. And it's also why they don't have like their own like ancient sacred traditions they come from because they, they don't have anything like that. They're a response to these other things. They're the criticism in the world of mage. They are the critics. And so what you have is like they actually do tend to have pretty intimate knowledge of some of those other magical practices because that's why they exist in the first place because they saw those and we're like what the bullshit is this i'm out and the interesting thing there is i posit that the first hollow one was born when the pyramids were being built and some teenager is like this is bullshit they said it in like demotic or something but like to me that yeah if if i got to write the hollow one thing like that is the ancient history i would add it would just be a parade of historical events and angry people going this is horse hockey and that no, would be that the, the, makes sense to me what you're saying the true spiritual core of who the hollow ones are are the people who are who look back on what's happening of about everything's fighting about and calling sacred and saying none of this is sacred it's all a bunch of horse shit do the hollowers believe that nothing is sacred or do they believe that the things other people find sacred are not? I don't think that they think nothing is sacred, but I do think that they, by and large, not all of them, tend to believe that the majority of things that are held sacred by society at large are not at all. And again, I'm going to pick on our, our favorite convention here, at least it's my favorite convention. Our society considers cash to be sacred because cash is power and, and power is sacred right and i believe that outside of a few like rich air level kind of hollow one um most of them are like yeah that's a bunch of crap and i also think that you know it's it's a really easy argument to make that they're also pretty anti-christian in a lot of ways but ultimately what you need to look at is not that it's not about it's not about christianity or money necessarily what it's about is who are the people who are causing the most harm in the world? How are they doing that? What is their justification for doing that? And that's what the bullshit is. That's mm -hmm. what you're critical of. And, and so again, like I, I mentioned earlier about how they see this world and the state it's in, and but they also can see who's causing the problem. So I think they're a lot less likely, for example, not always, but but sometimes to look at someone like some group philosophies, like I would say, like the cult of ecstasy and, and the dream speakers and, and definitely a lot of the disparates, because those groups aren't necessarily using what they hold sacred to cause all this damage in the world and to, and to, and to hurt people. So they direct their skepticism against people, against the trappings that are tied to the institutions of power that they consider to be unjust. I think that's right. But I think in the case, like we can make that argument against like any kind of like, any group, yeah. punky rebel group, right? Mm -hmm. Like against any, anything like that. But what separates them out is they're specifically focused on the end of the world. They're specifically focused on the dying world, on everything falling apart, everything becoming ashes. Yes. You can make arguments for hollow ones who are like, I'm fighting for justice. I'm fighting I find to make sure like, you know, there's equity in the world that those hollow ones exist. And that's a very goth belief. But also, I don't think that's like the primary focus. The primary focus is on who is screwing it up for everyone else. Those people are my targets of criticism, skepticism, and in some cases, but not always, or. Well, that's interesting. So they, they are a group that is uniquely interested in tearing down the powerful more so than uplifting themselves. I don't think they give a shit about uplifting themselves. Like they get a little clickish, right? So they're they they have their own like little social circles where they like to dominate and be like, you know, snarky little jerks. But like that's like their own little personal world. It's not the world at large. And when it comes to the world at large, I think they in a lot of ways they kind of accept that they're never gonna be an important rung of the the hierarchy of society. And they don't want to be because they actually see that hierarchy as a bunch of trash. So to bang on a little bit more about the magic, what are some either practices or instruments that 
maybe come to mind when you think goth, but may not for someone who is kicking the tires on having a goth character or NPC for the first time? You're always drawing back to the thing we talked about earlier about how important emotion and passion are like you always want to come back to that and i think it's with some exceptions it's fair to say that like just emotion raw emotion and raw passion themselves don't tend to make good tools magical tools in any way however the expressions of those things are what make great tools and so you know you can look at all kinds of art just like visual art and painting and stuff like that um, I think that one of the most obvious ones is music, because even though the gospel culture didn't specifically start with goth music, it is absolutely wrapped up and defined by that now. And it also didn't spend much time not defined by that. So it's it's been pretty much almost its whole life been defined by that. And so looking into both, I would say in the case in, in, in developing a paradigm, you could both, you can go two different directions. You can go in someone who creates the music and develops the music. Like you can be a musician itself in the same way, like a cultist might be and, and, and use their, you know, and embrace their paradigm that way. But also you ever hear like some stereotypical things people say about goss, like, Oh, you know, there's those teenagers in the cemetery at midnight again, listening to Bauhaus or, or, or Zymox or whatever, listening to that music, engaging in that feeling that that music gives you and, and i would say goth music is really good at touching on like those elements that we talked about before like horror and and grief but also tension which is another thing godspeed is good at you get into that headspace where you're manipulating your own emotions through that music then you can do magic by what you've done because if you walk through the cemetery at night that has a certain feeling if you've done this before and i imagine plenty of mage listeners probably have done this a couple times in their life Oh yeah. I think it's super fun. Yeah. But it, it, you have a feeling there's a, there's something that impacts the way you're perceiving the world. It impacts the way you're perceiving the world. Like you, you look at the darkness differently. You look at the shadows differently. You think differently about the ground that you're walking on. Like, you know, not everyone does this, but plenty of people who walk to the cemetery at night are super conscious about where they're placing their feet because they're thinking about the corpses beneath them and, and either being respectful or not respectful. Like, but either way they're, they're very conscious about the space in that way that alone already alters your perceptions and already the cultists are being like, yeah, you've done magic. But then beyond that, you slip on Bella Lugosi's dead to be really stereotypical and walk with that, that like slow, like how that song starts, that slow churning, like, and it's just building and like shifting your emotions and making you feel like differently about what this space you're engaging in and the tension and um, uh, what, you know, what, what does it mean to be here so close to the dead and so close to your own death and where you might lay one day mm. and you're just building up your emotions that way. Boom. Magic. Those are your tools. And it's interesting because my initial question was going to be, okay, this seems like a kind of sympathetic magic. How do we separate it from verbena or, uh, or witchcraft? But it seems to be a sympathetic magic to the idea of emotion as opposed to something maybe more symbolic like a hollower who wants to do your forces three prime two effect needs to summon rage to shoot that fireball where the verbena doing it is going to need some sort of symbol of fire and is not going to go necessarily through that emotional translation layer that it seems like the goths or the hollowers are drawing power from is that reasonable I think that's reasonable, but also I want to add on, I think they still are perfectly willing to engage in stealing the symbolism of, in this case, the verbena that you're talking about, okay. to help them. Because, you know, you still have plenty of, like, gothic witches casting hexes on their enemies, right? Like, mm -hmm. like in Mage, lots of times when you say witch, you're thinking of the verbena, but also, I'm, I promise you, the hollow ones are full of witches, too. But, like, they engage in it very differently. And, like, earlier when we were talking about doing this episode, I said that... 
I felt that the hollow ones were the most ecumenical of all the traditions. I believe that that's the case because they're willing to steal the aesthetic. They're mm. willing to steal the aesthetic of any culture as long as it enhances their own particular flavor of cool. And in some cases, you are going to have a hollower who's still engaging with that, that same symbol that the verbena is. But also, they're doing it for how it makes them feel. And they're doing it for the emotional release. To the verbena, like, oh, you know, this might be this sacred symbol of, of fire is how, like, I, I interact with the element of fire in a very sympathetic way. Mm-hmm. But but to the hollower who steals that symbol, it's more like this symbol of fire makes me look like a badass and like I'm a fire witch and we're going to go to town. <laughs> so it's it's kind of interesting. You now have me saying in terms of egalitarianism within a tradition or a group, what are we asking you to give up? To join, as it were. So, like, for instance, the only thing, or what are we asking of you uh, epistemologically to join? And Celestial Chorus, you need to believe that there's one thing, and we serve the one thing, and we want to go back to the one thing. Which is an interesting case where that is a simple belief to state, but for some, that is asking a huge amount. So, that statement, it sounds like for the hollowers, are you need to be willing to do a lot of work to look cool. Yeah, no, that's real. I think you'd agree with me if I said, if you were a hollower who didn't put effort into looking cool, the other hollow ones aren't going to respect you. That is the equivalent of the hermetics reading a 900-page treatise to prove that they care. That is how you would prove intent. You can't be a hollow one in jorts and a tank top. (laughs) You can't. Okay, second bumper sticker that we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) You can't. You can't. Like, really, you can't. Like that person isn't going to be a hollower. The person who's like, I'm going to the grocery store, so I'm going to throw on my, you know, my swimming chunks and my taco sauce stained t-shirt is not a hollower. They can't be in that group. They can't be in that craft. They can't be in that tradition, however you want to call it, because that's so vital to their belief system and identity. And that is something that follows them around in the everyday, where the hermetic may be perfectly comfortable running out to the 7-Eleven to grab something. The hollower wouldn't be caught dead. No. Okay. Ever. If your image is your perfect raven black hair, your raven black tresses, man, when those roots, those those like ash blonde roots start to show, you better take care of that or you're losing it. I, <laughs> so what do you think are some interesting examples then of goth or hollower avatars? In the same way they can borrow from anyone, you could kind of have anything be an avatar. But I actually, I don't know, man, there's so many ways to go about this. Um, I recently played a, a hollower who was also indigenous and had indigenous heritage and like grew up on the res and stuff like that. And, and I, I decided to make that character's avatar an important folk hero in that particular tribe's stories. But the reason I went with folk hero was because I think the concept of being a folk hero ties directly into what the hollowers are about. They're into making themselves into folk heroes, right? So I actually think if you're going to go like, especially the primordial direction, a folk hero is, is a really good direction to go, but it, it can honestly be any of them. If you're like, man, how do I do something that's actually like avatars, not always, but often are like these sacred, sacred figures, right? Mm-hmm. And how do I do? How do I do that with this group that is like the sacred is bullshit? Well, again, not all the sacred is bullshit, but also like there are ways to still do it. Like I think that if you if you look at the idea of hollers being like modern day, like we're t- we're making ourselves folk heroes, you know, you can go that direction for avatars, but also you can go with a lot of different specific aesthetics that might lean that way. Too. Like like honestly, in the end. Anyone's avatar can be anything Mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with your choice of tradition. But when you're crafting your character 
and you want your avatar to lean into this theme and you want to go into that like you can look at a uh, hollow one avatar it'd be the reincarnation of ian curtis like i've got ian curtis like singing in my ear about the dead souls and how and i and i've got him telling me about his problems and guiding me along my path that just popped in my head right now but now i kind of want to play that holler with the reincarnation of ian curtis's ian curtis was the lead singer the songwriter for joy division i don't Bulls, remember Bulls. okay got it yeah. so can you give me what you consider to be uh, to to have more things that players can take to the table when we were thinking in that postmodern vein what are some examples you feel of a hollower stealing a focus or an idea from another group or paradigm to do an effect like can you run through a couple of them like how would a hollower summon that fireball or do they believe they can resurrect the dead or how would they control someone's mind just like a few the effects that you would consider either super goth or super hollower that someone can walk away with like what is the focus and what is the effect instant like in crowd acceptance you walk up uh and offer your clothes cigarette to someone or or to the group you're like hey i've got i'm or you walk up smoking your clothes Mm -hmm. and then wordlessly offer the packet the tin thing that you have open because you don't do it out of like a cigarette packet right you have these little tin things that carry around with the etchings on it and offer that to the group instant acceptance into the group uh which could be like a mind or entropy effect right so even though the books are always like, uh, they can specialize in any sphere. So a lot of their magic is is more coincidental than average. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say it's more co- coincidental than even a lot of the convention magic because they get like really out there sometimes. And so you have a lot of entropy and mind effects, which is I think why that's the first thing that came to mind. So you're not necessarily going to have them summoning fireballs in the first place. That's not really quite the aesthetic they're going for. However, you might have something where you're uh, reading a poem around lit candles and you know that are part of your thing like these melted candles that are around you in a circle and as you're as you're reading the poem the the fire grows brighter and brighter as you intone the lines of the poem more and more and -hmm. as you're coming to this point of of like explosiveness of emotion in the poem then you might have a conflagration of those candles that might be a, a way i could see them doing something that's closer to a fireball effect in music performance you might do a mind effect that allows people to disconnect from grief. So you might perform a song that literally is about grief, that is a sad song, that is about like the, you know, the loss of, like the death of a loved one or something like that. Let's say you have a fellow mage in your clique that is so distraught about the loss of their lover that they're going into quiet, right? They're starting, they're starting to show the signs of going to quiet. You might be able to write a song and play a song for that person that pulls them right back out. Because instead of being like, everything is done everything is useless i am i'm alone and empty nothing can be good again your focus instead on the beauty of what that loss was and and why the reason you're feeling those emotions so powerfully is because of how hard you loved when normally we do the paradigm conversations one of my questions is how is this a paradigm that can fit into any tradition or is this something that is going to be localized in this case do you feel the gothic or ascetic can fit into any tradition or do you feel it is kind of bound I think the hardest place to make that, I think you probably could fit that into a lot of the traditions. Um, I do think that there's certain things that the traditions demand that make it hard, the certain traditions demand that make it harder. I do believe you could be a skeptic goth who still believes in one God. So let's go with the cliche statement, God is dead. That's a pretty goth thing to say, right? But the beginning of that statement is God existed in the first place. You have to start from a place of being like, if the world is falling apart, and you know nothing is good that's why you say god is dead but also like you acknowledge that well at one point when god was alive the world could have been good or was good maybe even and in that case i could see like a, a gothy chorister no problem and also if you think about it you know i, I mentioned that they steal a lot of aesthetic from the rubena but if you really think about it, the primary place that they steal their aesthetic from is is from christian religion at least goth 
stuff, not necessarily all hollow ones, but gothy stuff steals a lot of aesthetic from Christian religion. So you have that. I think the hermetics are, again, like with the with the indigenous magic one, uh, are, are, are probably one of the most challenging, if only because if we're saying House Kriamon exists in our game, and not all mage games do, but if we are, I think they they can you can have a lot of gothiness going on there because they're also very like individualistic, like we do things our own way. You can also, you know, stick them in miscellanea in a lot of ways, but like there's so much like this is the one true right way and we do it perfectly and no one can say otherwise that I think it'd be really hard to be a skeptic in that scenario. I see a goth Bonnie Sages running around out there who is looking for that perfect poem to truly encapsulate how they feel and will put just as much effort into finding that as a hermetic will into reciting some bit of Goetia. That sounds like a cool concept. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Poems are powerful. You just bitches haven't spent enough time finding or writing the right one. And I will show you, and I have it down to a, to a formula, one that you can't understand. The last character I mentioned, the last Hollow one I mentioned to you that I was playing, mm-hmm. um, or their their background, their backstory was that originally they were picked up by the Hermetics and specifically Hashea. And I was talking about how Hashea linguistics and symbols are so important to them. And it's the same thing. Like like you can you can absolutely translate over over to goth stuff because like when you're talking about presenting things in um, cool and emotionally driving ways using symbols like we already mentioned does that but also like by invoking specific languages like we we, we often associate certain feelings and ambiance and emotions with certain languages you know latin has that big feeling of being like this meta language that is kind of coming down from heaven in a way in this character's specific thing it was her invoking her indigenous languages and how that empowered her Oh, interesting. I do like that as an idea that you do have that Shia Goth who's like, I, I believe in the power of words to incite passions. It just so happens that it took me 48 languages to find the right word for the kind yeah. of sorrow I wish to describe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or I had to find this, like, what is it? I think it's um, in ancient Greek. There's something like 16 different words that mean different kinds of love. Or maybe it's eight. I don't know. It's like, it's a lot of words. The thing that we just use the one word love for. And like, maybe you had to like go learning through all these different languages until you find the right right one to let you express exactly how you were feeling because you couldn't do it in whatever language you started with. Yeah, they had a bunch. I mean, you have eros, sexual passion, uh, agape, which is love of society, storges, which is friendship. Uh, I can't remember the one that is like true love, but yeah, they had a they had a bunch running around. Uh, Ludus, which I think means game, which I think is kind of flirty stuff, but yeah, I, I can certainly see that. Are there gothnocrats? Um, I don't think it's impossible. Uh, um, okay. And I think the best example is uh, Hot Topic Goths uh, because they're kind of syndicate slash NWO Goths. First thing I want to say about that is there's so much commonality between the belief systems of the Etherites and the Hollow Ones that that's a really easy jump to make, um, in my opinion. Oh, interesting. They, I would have gone for the virtual adepts on the on kind of on the punk side where the world uh, fucked. Let's make a new world. That's real too. And we can go there. Okay. But like what I'm saying is like the cultures that they're drawing from, that both okay. are drawing from are essentially the same cultures. They just went different directions with them. Mm-hmm. And you're still going to find plenty of goths who are using the weird, like, 70s and 80s like space age kind of like things that like the the aesthetic of sci-fi that we don't really associate with sci-fi whatsoever anymore like the ray guns with the rings around the tips and stuff like that that's very etheric but it also that kind of stuff fits into the same era that that um, hollow ones are drawing a lot of their inspiration from and, and they also like you mentioned earlier how they both had that real big emphasis in their paradigm on creativity and i would argue that maybe the etherites don't focus as much on this but they are all they are both still really big into being individuals like my science 
is is this power like this invention I did is this unique thing that no one else can replicate because it was like I am the genius that came up with it and it's like I'm the only one who can make it work but it works so it's super cool that's not that different from what the hollow ones are are leaning into yeah what's more individualistic than an entire branch of science that only you can perform also, I think there's some argument to be made that Mary Shelley was one of the very first um, hollow ones. But then if you want to twist it on around, you could say that Mary Shelley was writing some of the first inspiration for the uh, etherites. What is the interface then between the goth worldview and some of the more indigenous or traditionalistic or what we would call <laughs> traditional views? What I would say growing up being that person is that you also learn to engage in a healthy dose of skepticism for the way the world is supposedly supposed to be because you grow up in a world that is not at all what that world is and you grow up hearing your histories that is not at all what that world is and so you have people out here who are being like the usa is a or in, in my case right the usa is the greatest nation in the world for x y and z reason you're like actually they're the worst nation in the world and, and here's my experience living in it being this kind of person who it got stamped on the forehead of my forefathers and I can't get out from under it. So I think that the whole idea, uh, and also here's, the, so, so that's like the very like skeptical postmodern side of it, right? But the other side of it that I would throw out here is, you know, indigenous people in the Americas have been experiencing the end of the world for the last 500 years. So we're pretty good into the, you know, the goth aesthetic. You're able to like lean into a little bit, like when, when that's, your existence and you don't have an option and that's just what it life is you lean into like what that means and like you're able to like have a macabre sense of humor about it i can make jokes about some horrid shit that my ancestors experienced that helped me move through that and and also i can um make art about that stuff that helped me move through that and make me feel like i'm more empowered one of these side art projects I'm, i've been working on for the last couple of years i just do it kind of slowly but i'm working on it is um i found a bucket of those old plastic cowboys and indians and i took out all the indians and i've slowly been painting them and i'm painting each one of them to just be wearing some kind of contemporary outfit or uniform like i have like you could have just a standard like blue jeans t-shirts one i have like a ups driver and i have like a firefighter but they're still like painted like the firefighter is one of these specific models that has like the huge like mohawk style feather headdress and i painted that in the colors of what the fireman helmet might look like like mostly it's just like taking this the fact that these toys exist in the way that they do has contributed negatively to my people and to my culture but also i'm taking it and turning it to an art that i feel is empowering are there any additional thoughts you have on the magic side or the the, the discussion of the goth worldview before we start talking more about the hollowers Again, I, I just would draw it back to like what what evinces emotion, and that's not the same for everyone. So like you need to think about your character specific. What's going to make their um, um what's going to enhance their emotions or, or be able to help them invoke their emotions more powerfully. So I'm talking a lot about like art and music, and we talked a little bit about poetry. Uh, I mentioned Mary Shelley, so I can say we talked about stories. Those are all things that that do that. But like think about your you know, your individual, your individual character doesn't have to be those things. It could be, honestly, this sounds dorky, but I know people like this. I know people who get really excited and passionate about puzzles. So I don't see why if you're still evoking the emotion, if you're still evoking the passion, why it couldn't be something that's not obviously like the arts. Oh man, someone's going to get mad about this. Uh, okay. I think that you can make hollow uh, a hollow one who's a furry. Because when you really dive into it, like there's so many jokes and things you can say about them. But one, here's here's a thing that they have in common: that gossip culture and furries have in common. They both they both have uh, a lot of problems getting picked on. Goss less so these days, but definitely. 
back in the day. Um, and they're, they're, they're at the bottom of the social hierarchy, in the broad social hierarchy, not their own social hierarchy. But also, if you really talk to, like, furries who are super serious about what they're doing, um, as opposed to just, like, looking at the stereotypes and making fun of them, the way that they craft their personas and how much thought and emotion and energy and passion they put into creating those characters and how they use them to identify who they are and who they feel that they are on the inside, the way that they're crafting them as their own heroes, essentially, I really feel fits into that same ideology. Now, I don't doubt that if you made a furry hollow one that you're going to have the rest of the hollow ones being like, what the actual fuck? Uh, I still think there's a really valid direction you can go with that if you're if you're willing to do that in a way that is not going to like derail the game that you're playing in with making fun of furries. Like basically if you do that, if you go that direction, look into what those people actually care about as opposed to like the jokes people make about them. But the interesting thing there is it fails to me to trigger the end of the world test, like for goth, like that everything's going to shit. Like I would be curious to see that furry who's like, everything's going to shit. I'm going to dress up like a giant meerkat. I imagine that that furry one would still be crafting a, a persona that still has a lot of that goth aesthetic. Like they're still actually a goth person. And also you, when you think of furry, you often think of like, you know, foxes and wolves and stuff like that. Um, but there's literally no, as far as I understand, there's no like restriction on what kind of animals you're allowed to use. So why not be a bat furry or why not be a spider furry? We've talked about the Hollowers is part of Outcasts, the, the the book of Outcasts. They get a revised tradition book, but one thing we don't get in the book reviews is either the panoply of them over time or how they're presented in M20. Where are the Hollowers now, like in the contemporary world, and how do they stay relevant or how do they stay keep changing? If we have any like really hardcore goth traditionalists listening to this, they might not like someone about to say. And I'm sorry ahead of time. I have love for both those who are like this is what goth was and it will and it will always be this and those who are moving away from that i'm sorry ahead of time there are those who are like this is what we are and we aren't changing the traditionalists who are going to die out they aren't going to be part of the movement in the future they aren't going to be part of the, the continuing goth subculture unless they're willing to embrace change and some of them are some of them are like like i will say that like i know traditionalists who are like, hey, we need to talk about how black goth this gossip culture is because everyone, no one want, ever wants to say it's just white for white people. And like, it's we had black musicians in The Cure, we had black musicians in Nick Cave and the Bad Seas, we had you know black musicians in O Children, like, and that I see as a symbol of them moving past some of their being stuck in the old ways kind of stuff. But also, they'll also be in the position that like bands like uh, or like music genres like gothic metal isn't actually goth, which is understandable because I think the whole like aversion to gothic metal that exists within the goth traditionalist community mostly comes from an aversion to Marilyn Manson. But also like they see they often see those other genres as co-opting their style as being as instead of being influences and like branches of their style. So there's a lot of like gatekeeping defensiveness of what it is to be that. And that same thing exists in the hollow ones. Right. Um, there's a lot of gatekeeping defensiveness of who it is to be, what it is to be a hollow one. But it isn't really accurate because like when you really when you look at it, like they're talking about how how far does their culture go back? Well, it, I think like arguably it can go back as far as the pyramids, like you said, but like they'll go back to the Romantic era and those none of those people call themselves goths. That didn't exist. And yeah. and also a lot of the people who they're saying are like original hollow ones or original like progenitors of hollow one thought and thinking didn't like have that goth aesthetic so things changed over time and i saw that i feel like this is related to you tell me if i'm off but i feel like this is related to the question i think came like twice in the in the discord 
about like where are goths today how can they stay around like pretty much goths are gone like the whole movement's gone uh it's not true what that statement is a reflection of is that goth culture has always been underground goth culture has always been a subculture that was you know below notice until it got blown up via capitalism in the 90s which is again a lot of the hatred towards Marilyn manson is he's associated with that that event and so you have both today you have both both aspects of that existing today you have the hot topic goths you have the baby bats who who don't actually know where they're coming from but they like it for the cute aesthetic you've got e-girl goths is actually a really big thing there's all kinds of like monetized kind of like pop culture tim burton movies right you have that super pop culturified aspect of quote-unquote goth culture that old school gossip like no none of that but then you still have the subculture the the underground culture that exists today that is like you know one still honoring like the late greats still being like we're all we're all joy division all the time but also creating contemporary art and music goths and hollow ones don't care what anyone else thinks of them they kind of do but like it's part of their cool thing, the cool shtick. But ultimately, they, they don't care about what the people in power think of them. And so they're not out there trying to like blast a hole in the ground that says, I was here. In the Hollow Ones and in goth culture, that's still happening right now. And you could say, oh, well, they're not as relevant as they were then. No, like, is is it like every other, every third teenager, you know, walking around with like stripy long socks and a Marilyn Manson t-shirt but that but gossip said that wasn't gothic culture in the first place mm-hmm. oh another 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 thing I thought of is when people were like oh you know that whole subculture's dead I'm like have you been to Japan or have you looked at images from Japan yeah <laughs> spend 15 Everywhere. minutes in Harajuku yeah but that's pretty fascinating and now that's interesting because like in my head I see this silent war taking on like there is a portion of the digital web that is dedicated to TikTok and I just see it as syndicate brand influencers versus this like the masses of e-girls and that I want to see that play out in the Ascension War somewhere. You know, I think that would be a really cool thing to explore as long as you can do it in a cool way and not be shitty towards sex workers. To, to go back to the core issue. So one, the subculture itself is evolving where there are new wings or new expressions of goth because no cult, every culture changes over time regardless. You will have the traditionalist in the same way that Neville Sinclair really hasn't changed in the last 150 yeah. years. That is going to move forward. Would the hollowers embrace new forms of cool? Is there a Instagram influencer wing of the hollow ones or do they fail the passion test? Sure, why not? Have you seen, you know, the brush challenge, the pass the brush challenge where they like, there's like, like the video where they're on, on Instagram where they'll throw each other a brush and like use it and like turn it into a specific, like dressed up as whatever kind of culture they're doing. So there's, there's goth ones. There's a, there's plenty of goth pass the brush challenges. Okay. So, and those are, those are viral Instagram memes essentially, right? The pass the brush challenge. Like, okay, here's the other thing I'll throw out there. You know what's really big on not just Instagram, but also YouTube is uh, makeup tutorials. You can find a whole bunch of goth makeup tutorials. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be influencers in that way too. So Okay, so it is not just the quest of cool. It is cool through this through this passionate shade. Yeah. So that kind of answers the question of like, what is the contemporary thing going to do? I, I think that's also like one of those things where it would be like asking to put it into perspective. Like, oh, in 1920s, ray guns and zeppelins were huge. Where are the Sons of Ether going to go now that those aren't popular in the 30s and 40s? And be like, well, they're, they're still around. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to jam in one. So the Hollowers kind of had their their boom during that commercialized period. 
And in the metafiction of the game, they draw the modern incarnation of the Hollowers back to the decadence of the 20s, followed by the sense of listlessness about money that it, that it created, the feeling of hollowness, followed by a feeling that all the traditional structures that gave life meaning were destroyed in World War II. And then that was kind of like the second wave of the modern Hollowers. And the Hollow Ones are kind of the newest tradition, as it were, if they were to join the council. Do you have any guesses as to what would come after them? I don't think that the Hollowers are made of what everyone else threw out. I do think that um, they picked up uh, a lot of the things that maybe you, you could you could have the traditionalists argue that they were throwing out. But in reality, they picked up things that the traditionalists saw as sacred, adopted to their own. And the traditionalists were like, well, they're not sacred to me anymore. Oh, interesting. Not, that's okay. not the same thing. That's not the same it's thing it's, it's almost about. the exact opposite. Rather than picking up what they discarded, they picked up what they held sacred. But like in a lot of ways that they complain about what the syndicate has done through Hot Topic to them, they kind of did that to other traditions. Except I would argue that they didn't do it with the intent of making it irrelevant. They did it with the, the t- intent of making it relevant to them because it wasn't before. The beliefs of the traditions are pretty irrelevant to them, but they could use the trappings of the traditions to make something to make it into something relevant. So it's a question like what subculture might replace them as like a group of a, a, a tradition, a tradition based in a subculture or an existing. Really either. Because when I think about it, several traditions had their dominant periods of time. And and again, this is going to be admittedly Western. You have the idea. That if we go back in time, you had the Qin dynasty, which was the, the most powerful on the face of the planet at the time. Cool beans. And that you could argue then that the some some weird form of proto-Akashic were the most powerful tradition on the face of the planet. And then at another t- point, it was it went to the verbena. And the dream speakers present themselves as having been basically what everyone was in a sufficiently far, far back time. Before the gauntlet had gone up, everyone was a dream speaker. And the notion of magic was kind of ridiculous. It just so happened that there was these certain subsect that maintained the ability to do magic after the sundering happened or the shattering after the gauntlet went up. And then we kind of get this technological progression that you had their hermetics that eventually gave way to the Sons of Ether as the new cool kids who eventually gave way to the to the virtual adepts as the new cool kid. And before the hermetics, you had the chorus, the power of the church is kind of the dominant thing. So you can kind of make this timeline of seemingly when each tradition was at their apex and they were invariably bumped off by some new paradigm that the world embraced that made powerful. Is there a next paradigm? Yes. But I actually don't know how much relationship relationship it has specifically to if the hollow ones became more established. One, I don't think they're ever going to be. I think kind of the way in a theme they were written, it, it was never like the, the fight about them trying to be more established is there, but it's not something they can win, which is part of what we want to be a discussion of like, what are the traditions doing right and wrong? Well, what, how are they treating the hollow ones, right? So first of all, I don't think they can actually do that. I don't think they should. I think then joining the disparate alliance is actually a better direction to go with them actually having any kind of a, a structure, like factional structure. That said, if we were going to look at the next group that was like the mavens of the Ascension War, I actually think it'd be kind of like not not actual virtual adepts, but like kind of like something the virtual adepts have unintentionally created. Arguably, the virtual adepts have succeeded in parts of their Ascension War goals. You have so many people living online and living in their online lives as an alternate reality, in some cases, an enhanced reality. Like, do you remember like in the 90s when, when um, if you like met, a, met someone online who you're romantically interested, everyone will be like, oh my god, you're going to get killed. Like, mm-hmm. everything is going to go wrong. This person's going to be a nightmare crazy person or whatever. Today, it's normal. They've kind of built, maybe maybe I would say a reality 1.5, right? 
not a reality 2.0, but really 1.5. And the people who are growing up in that reality without having any experience of anything else, the people who see it as like, what's normal is us being on the other side of the country, being friends and talking all the time and also recording this podcast together. That's not, that's not normal. If it was in the nineties, this would be a special event. It'd be really difficult to pull off. Like one of us might have to fly out to see the other one, something like that. Instead you have it where it's all of it's super normalized. And then you also, so here I'm going to draw upon a real world event about what kind of group do we see? Uh, it's a group that doesn't necessarily take itself that seriously, but also really cares. And a, a, the thing that we were talking about literally the weekend we were recording this is that rally that Trump had in Tulsa and how they were like, we're going to um, sell, we, we've sold millions of tickets, like millions, not sold in millions, but it's millions of people asked. We built this massive overflow area from our 19,000 seater arena because there's so many people going to be outside and we've got like stages out there so we can make extra speeches from the president and the vice president to the people who can't even get in and like they also spent all this energy like recording all the data from the people that requested tickets and like understanding these new demographics and like essentially being like 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 it, it like it's the story goes way beyond the fact that only six thousand people showed up when they were expecting like tens and tens of thousands it goes into like you know Thank the you, trump k-pop stands <laughs> yeah k-pop stands and honestly just just tiktok teenage teens right like like mm-hmm. you know it, it goes into like the Trump campaign thrives off of its data management, uh, which we talked about early on with Trump with ca- how Cambridge Analytica works, right? And they've essentially, like, the the campaign was so invigorated and so excited about how many people they thought wanted to see go to this rally. And so they invested a lot of time, money, and energy into uh, into taking the data from all these requests and all these people who were communicating with them and being like, here's our people, here's how we're going to market, here's how we're going to win, here's how we're mm-hmm. going to get these votes. And none of all of that is wasted. You have a lot of them who are like, we care because Trump's a monster, right? And sorry about getting a little political, but that's why they did it. But also you have plenty of them who are like, we're doing this because we're causing chaos in this system and we, we kind of want to see it breakdown and i don't know how better to define what that group would be because i don't like you could say oh that does sound like something virtual adepts would do except these weren't virtual adepts yeah and and to me the virtual adepts fundamentally failed i the more time i think about it the less i like the virtual adepts because of how much they tried to take a public good and make it theirs yeah like you read digital web 2.0 and you're like every time you've been on the internet for a while and you have a headache that is the quintessence leaving your body powering the digital web and the virtual depths want it all themselves i'm like bitch you're taking my quintessence <laughs> i got a slice of this shit too it, it just comes off like entitled white people like i, they I, I fully recognize the existence of dante but like oh man they have not aged well i would say if you want to look at who the virtual webs are today you, like look at anonymous and while you can argue, yeah, there's some cool things Anonymous does, you can also be like, there's a bunch of trash they do. Like, they're, they're, a lot of times they're just a waste of space. Like, there isn't a lot of, like, specific, we know exactly who these people are. Mm-hmm. But for the amount that we do, they're people with of means and money who are like, our emphasis is on, like, we think the world's going to be better if, if information is free and if everyone knows everything. But we're also, we might have all these resources and money that we're not necessarily helping anyone with. And uh, on, on the other hand, you, like, the reason I'm saying this group isn't virtual adepts and isn't them at all... Uh, is because they are a product of something the virtual adepts did. They are a product of the virtual adepts impact on the global paradigm. But also I think that they come from a lot more, there are a lot more diverse communities. So you know how like you'll get primarily from white folks in response to the George Floyd um, protests being stuff like, 
why does everyone all of a sudden hate cops? Part of that revelation for the dominant culture, which in this case I'm describing whiteness, it, we can describe the dominant culture as men or, or as people with money, but in this yeah, case yeah, I'm, sure. I'm talking about whiteness, is that the internet has really leveled the field when it came to learning about people's experiences. Mm -hmm. Because previously, when you had uh, our, our culture dominated by whiteness, our, our, our media news sources were dominated by whiteness telling white stories. Our academic institutions were dominated by whiteness telling white stories. And so a lot of the social information that is coming to us is coming from the lens of whiteness. But now that you have the internet and you literally can't stop an Indian, a black person, a Mexican, you know, whatever, you can't stop those people from just putting their opinion on the web and then another black person or Indian being like, yeah, me too. And then a whole bunch of them talking about it and it blowing up. Like there's no gatekeeping. There is some gatekeeping. Like you can argue like Facebook, like if you write, if you write white men, it automatically bans your post. Um, but it won't do that if you write the N-word. But like, uh, so there is some gatekeeping. But by and large, the way that we exist on the internet now has created this flow of information from communities that have not been listened to before, which which in this case hugely involves young people. But now, like the the opinions of teenagers, essentially destroyed this multi million dollar effort that the Trump campaign put into getting him reelected. So I like that. So your new tradition is going to be generally younger, generally more diverse. It is probably going to be anarchic or anarcho syndicalist. It is going to have an extreme skepticism to structures of power. So in the same way that the the hollow ones have a skepticism of the sacred or things that are emotion that is used to manipulate people, this may be a more direct attack on those wheels of power. And to me, I think the other aspect of it would be some sort of radical acceptance. Some more questions, I guess, about the hollow ones. One thing I guess we didn't do is what is the difference then just between the hollow ones and being a goth? So you know how when earlier we I kind of briefly touched on it, but like one of the kind of big criticisms of goths is that you know you're not individualist, you're all a bunch of conformists because you all look exactly the same. Well, that is a real issue. And there is a lot of gothicness. There's a lot of like existence within the culture that you know, again, you're gonna have elitists be like, no, these people aren't goths, but they are in the culture and in many ways because of how they appear and how they act, they represent it too. So you're gonna have a lot of like conformists who are never going to be people who awaken you're going to have people who are there because only because it's cool like the cool is really important but the people who are there just for the social status and that alone they're never they're never going to get into what the hollow ones care about they're never going to get in they're never going to awaken like i think the hollow ones revised has mixed messaging on this but i would argue that if you're the kind of goth who purely embraces nihilism and nothing else you're probably not going to awaken again I, i'm going to acknowledge that the the established canon does say that those kinds of people can awaken and become hollow ones. But my feeling is that if you don't have a spark of power, of, of empowerment or hope or something that's in the, that vein, anywhere, you can't become awakened. You can't reach that kind of enlightenment. You, you're, you're missing like this vital step. Like what everyone awakens in different ways, but it's always related to some level of self-empowerment, which I think is why this game is compelling anyway, because like we can engage in like these self-empowerment fantasies, which when in a world where you often feel really helpless, feels really good. So I don't think that those kinds of people in the goth culture can awaken. I also, here's another like <clears throat> indirect way of answering that question. Goth culture does deal with some problems of white supremacy and fascism a little bit and i would say in the same way that like pagan culture deals with it like obviously there's 
it's it's like a smaller group, but also it's a very vocal, loud group that has a, a lot of influence. And while I don't see anything stopping from people like that from awakening, I don't think by and large the hollow ones are going to be very accepting of those people. So even though you might like initially awaken and have like a lot of the trappings that appear like that's who you are, I think you'd get a lot of social kickback from them because because they're very open and accepting like goth experience like it's kind of like with with nerd culture i think nerd culture not always obviously there's huge problems with white dude nerds in certain especially in certain communities but nerd culture can can often be a little bit more accepting of people when they realize that those people have been picked on or bullied or oppressed because they're like oh yeah i get it like i was picked on for like liking doctor who or whatever i was picked on for liking ninja turtles even though there's a lot of still shortcomings um there can still be a little bit of of understanding there so in the same way like if you're like a fascist goth who's like a gatekeeper who's like i don't want people with dark skin or i don't want people who think that anyone but like the cure and and whoever else is a goth band like those people might get rejected if rich thomas comes to you and says i would like you to be the lead developer on a update to the hollow ones what would be in there that maybe wouldn't be in the established material so far are there any changes that you would like to see made are there any updates that you would like to have made M20 touched on one aspect of thing a thing you just said and that making the hollow one art a Harajuku girl so that that way it was kind of like even without directly saying it they were telling the the fans like hey look beyond you know UK and American culture you talked about this a few times about how like the mage history of the hollow ones is like barely there and I think with some good reason but I actually think there's a lot to be explored there. Um, one of the questions that came up, again, related to like the Harajuku girls was was like, oh, like, you know, what about global hollow ones? They're all just like, you know, UK American white kids. And I'm like, well, for one, I think that a lot of the hollow one philosophies actually came out of different parts of Europe. Like the, the a lot of it was coming out of the French Revolution too, which we didn't even talk about. But also you're missing a some really important um, influences on their beliefs like from argentina you've got like esteban echeverria and then um you also have like jorge luis borges um who who i i feel are you know south american writers who if you look at what they're writing like these are they were hollow ones <laughs> they were absolutely speaking with that voice that at least ended up being something that influenced what we look at as being hollow and stuff today and like i would love to see a take on them that explores their globalness a lot more especially because if we did do a current version of them we'd have to talk about them in relation to in relationship to the disparate alliance and the disparate alliance is very 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 not white <laughs> they're next to maybe like the sisters and the and the templars are like and i would say the sisters actually are probably pretty brown if you really think about it but um so maybe the, the, the templars and them are like the only like real either european or, or american focused groups north american focused groups and everyone else is like from the rest of the world for the most part everyone else is 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 from the very brown parts of the world and so like what is the relationship with them like like what made them want to like the obvious answer to like what made them want to work together is they all hate the nefandi that's basically why that alliance exists they're like let's get rid of the nefandi and unlike the traditions of the technocracy they could see that the fact that there was nefandi within the ranks of those groups and they that they had to be rooted out because it basically both traditions and technocracy even if they did do know it they can't let people know it so like they kind of hide the fact that they have corruption in their ranks and the, and the alliance is like no no no, get rid of that shit too and also we never liked you guys in the first place so it's really easiest for us to make excuses to fight with you but like i'd want to talk about their global relationship i want to talk about the relationship with the other members of like you know how like every single tradition book has that one short little section about here's my relationship with each other tradition i want to do that but for their relationships with all the other disparate crafts and then maybe like talk about a little bit of history honestly like i want to be clear 
the whole disparate lives thing, that's something Seder came up with. But he and I talked a lot about it at the time. I don't know who he talked to, quote unquote, the most about it. But I don't feel like I was a small part of that discussion. I feel like it was a lot of stuff that we talked about. Because a lot of stuff that we talked about ended up in the book. So when we were talking about it, it wasn't very strictly defined. Like what events made this happen? What did it look like? And I'd love to see stuff that explored how that ended up working out that way. On top of that, I look at all those other subcultures. Like you have like Hawaiians, like Native Hawaiians, you have uh, Muslims. And I think about how literally all these other global ethnic groups that these other crafts are drawing from also have goths. And like I want to write about those goths. Whenever I hear I like American, UK, uh, Canadian people complain or not complain, but like comment that goth the gossip culture is dead it's long gone it's, it's a thing of the past will you like look at any of what's going on in brazil like go go look at any brazilian protest and it's like a bunch of goths <laughs> and like brazil is is extremely historically multicultural right you have so much you have white black indigenous influence like like that today like like here in the in the americas it would um the colonizers were so efficient at not only wiping out indigenous people essentially like completely destroying the paths of hope for black people that didn't happen the same way in brazil you saw slavery and wiping out indigenous people but not in the same way not in the same degree and so today today while you see the us like dominated by whiteness there it's like you're, it's like a very strong mix and well, I'm not going to go out on a limb and be like, well, that means there's no races and they have their own problems. But it does mean that you have a variety of influences that here, like you only tend to hear one side of the story and there it's like a lot that comes from a lot of different directions. And so I feel like being able to talk about what it is to be a goth in Brazil would be really exciting. What I think will be the last two questions before I open up the floor for any, any final thoughts you have is one of the questions that came up in multiple cases is for someone who is either not from the U.S. or who is younger and did not experience the wave of goth going through the culture, if someone wants to get up to speed on it quickly, what cultural touchstones do you think they can look at? Like, what is your short list of maybe books, movies, or bands to, to kind of get that, that quick slice? For books, you're going to want to look into poetry. I'm going to go back and say, look at Borges. Also, Edgar Allan Poe, obviously, is a big obvious example. And honestly, if you start with those two, um, you could probably just find a host of others that have related writings. But I really feel like the best thing that you're going to be able to do to get a good feel of what it means to be goth is to explore the music. But I want to emphasize that you can start with what's called traditional goth music, but you really need to move past that. If you haven't heard Bauhaus, if you haven't heard Susie and the Banshees, if you haven't heard The Cure, if you haven't heard Joy Division, you are absolutely missing a vital part of what it is to be goth or to be a hollow one. You have to have that basis, but you can't, you can't stop there. Definitely. You don't need to go looking into Marilyn Manson. That's the wrong direction to start expanding into. You're going to miss the point. If you start going down that road. Instead, I want people to start looking at things that aren't maybe necessarily traditionally labeled goth, but are still capturing the essence and ambience of what it means to be goth. So like the devotion to those three passions that we described, like horror, terror, and grief. And you're going to be looking at bands like Lost Tribe. Honestly, there's a there's a musician who's who I don't think anyone would want to call goth, but I think is goth. It's Serpent with Feet. This, you know, Sal Williams is is really hip hop, but I feel like the things that Sal Williams is talking about are 100% in the vein of what it is to be goth. And there's also like a lot of like there's like I, I mentioned before, Light Asylum. Don't skip Light Asylum. They are actually pretty pretty goth, but they're also more um contemporary goth. So check out Light Asylum for that reason. Pu I, I mentioned Public Enemy, which again. 
people aren't normally associating with goth, but that ambiance, what they're talking about, what their themes are, it absolutely is. Um, you want to check out Marissa Nadler. You want to check out Chelsea Wolfe. And for those of you who prefer music that's at least 300 years old, I strongly recommend Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, Music Gorski's Night on Bald Mountain, and Camille de Sassons. But that's just me. And ultimately, what makes a good hollow one? Like, if I'm building a hollower character, what are the things where you're like, yeah, this really needs to be there, and if you figure this out, you've nailed it? I'm going to go back to the beginning of the episode. It's finding the beauty in the awfulness of the world. It's remembering that when your mother dies and you are gripped with all of this awful feeling of grief and loneliness and emptiness and disconnection and like self-immolation, that the reason that exists, the reason that feeling exists is because you had a space in you that was full of your love and passion for her. And now it's hollow, but that love and passion still exist. And that's why you feel that way. Like when you see the world burning, when you see the world dying, when you see it erupting in hate, when you see the planet like choking itself to death and you feel like you can't get out of bed, the reason that you have those feelings is because of your love for the world. And you need to remember that love part, that passion part. Those things matter. And Mage is ultimately a game about people who choose to act. So the ones that choose to stay in bed are probably not mages. And just as a note, um, many of these questions were collected from our Discord server, discord.me slash matesthepodcast. Thank you to WorldJumper, JMags, Elon Rouge, and Pulp Action Boy for submitting questions, as well as a few others that I may have already had, so I rolled it in. But thank you so much for participating there. James is also in our Discord periodically. So we've covered my thing. Is there anything else you'd like to make sure the audience knows? Or alternatively, are there any projects from you we should look forward to seeing in the future? I'm excited about Werewolf 5th, whether or not wherever that's going to be when this episode comes out yeah um, <laughs> we'll be on werewolf six by the time this goes. no um, <laughs> oh god i did sign on to work on the technology reloaded companion so i'll have some stuff in there and other than that like i do love talking about music if you can tell like i'm not only into like goth stuff i'm just a, a music snob honestly is what i've been called for funsies i've been making big playlists on all the different werewolf tribes and so if you want to like just in general get into like music nerdery with me you can check those out and talk about why i picked them if you're into that kind of stuff i actually thought really hard about doing a hollow one playlist for this but then i was like you know what it's not that really hard to just like whip up like a like go go to spotify and write like goth music and find like a really good playlist so there's not really no point for me to make a new one unless it were a case where there was some need for curation where if you type in goth and the first thing you get is marilyn manson then that's kind of something that you want to dodge i might be able to play around with that but also here actually i'm instead i'm not i'm not going to do it what i am going to say is Sater has something like five different playlists they're all like all the goth music he loves and he's the one who writes this game more than like lots of people have written this game but like he his fingers on it more than anyone else in the world so if you want to get a feeling for his own goth feelings and tastes like just go to check his playlist out and he's got some really good stuff on there he's also uh i haven't even mentioned in this episode and i should have like his number one goth band is the killing joke and the killing joke is rad and you should listen to them too actually fronted by alan moore so <laughs> <laughs> and with that james thank you so much for your time where thank can we you. choose to follow your work if we wish to Oh, you can follow me uh, at JF High, H-I-G-H, on Twitter. I don't care if you have me as a friend on Facebook, but if you are a fascist troll, you will be deleted and blocked. And uh, also, you can find me... Uh, oh, my, my Twitter is is actually... Sorry, my, Twitter, my, my Facebook is, is JF Sombrano. And then you can find me on um, Patreon as JF Sombrano as well, which is where I'm doing most of the 
those playlists I was mentioning, and they're totally free. I don't, I do very little paywall content. You can get most of my stuff on there for free. And you have, I think, one of the best sets of Patreon support tier, like tier names that oh. I think I've ever encountered. So I am not going to tell you what they are, listener. Just go there, and you you will get a treat. It's a joke about how people treat indigeneity since I write a lot about that. So, <laughs> James, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Mage the Podcast. You can subscribe to our show on Spotify, Anchor, TuneIn, iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, or the podcatcher of your choice. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform you're choosing, or at least tell some of your friends about us. We really appreciate it. We have a hopping Discord community at discord.me slash podcast, and you can also give us your thoughts and feedback over email at magethepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at magethepodcast. If you'd like to support us and get a cool chat color in Discord, go to magethepodcast.com and click on Become a Supporter. This episode is made possible by the support of our executive producers, and they are Anders, Andrew K, Andrew E, Brendan, Bryce Perry, Christopher P, Chris Zach, Ira Grace, Justin, John Magnuson, Michael Parker, Richard Bat Brewster, and William. Also go to Mates the Podcast for show notes and all of our other previous shows. Our random limerick for a executive producer this week is for Andrew K. There once was a donor named Andrew K, whose very deeds were quite fearsome to say. He slayed bygone beasts and hosted umbral feasts, but to list more would just be cliché. As a note, the word cliché is thought to be onomatopoetic, imitating the sound of overused printing plates striking each other. From the original French, cliché, and with that, bye!